All right, take your Bibles if you would, and let's go to Luke chapter 4. It's been an extraordinary and very, very exciting time to see the Lord Jesus Christ in action in this wonderful account given to us by Luke. So far, during the entire six weeks of severe testing, when Satan has come at the Lord, Jesus, of course, in this entire time is becoming famished, and of course, when these temptations occur that are written here, he's already exhausted and no doubt dehydrated. He's mentally and emotionally drained. He is, of course, totally alone by himself, and he's facing every relentless scheme at Satan's disposal. But the enemy has not been able to get Jesus to yield up even one thought against the will of God. Not one. And of these final three temptations, the two that we've studied so far have been aimed right at the very heart of everything precious to God. The first enticement was basically that Jesus would prove to himself that he was a beloved son of God by living on what he wants to live on right now. Not living by the promises or the wisdom of God, but living by his own wisdom, using his power to get the relief he deserves. Command these stones to be made bread. Jesus said it, man doesn't live by bread alone, as the Bible teaches, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Whatever God's wisdom says, whatever God promises, that's what I lean on. The second enticement, as you know, we saw last time, was the competition between the glory of God and the glory of man. And of course, Satan had at his disposal the ability to take Jesus and in a moment of time show him all of the the earthly glory. And we saw last time that's exactly what he did. He showed it to him in vivid living color in a moment of time, supernaturally. Jesus was there, and what he saw were all of the ways that the earthly kingdoms could give him the, the proper and the rightful exaltation that he deserved. The temptation basically said you can have everything as Messiah right now at your disposal. You can have your rightful earthly glory and exaltation at the hands of men. There will be no inevitable humiliation. There will be no sin-bearing and no agony. Just have it right now. You have just one condition. Bow down and demonstrate that I'm the supreme, worthy one. And again, Jesus trusted what the Scriptures say. He trusted the glory of His heavenly Father when God, the Father, said, You shall worship no other gods before Me. You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name, was the Scripture Jesus turned to. We come to this final enticement, and it is absolutely riveting, because as Luke records them, what you have now here is a challenge between the sovereignty of God, the sovereign purposes of God, the authority of God, and man's own Authority. We could say it this way. It is a temptation for man to become autonomous as it relates to his plan and purpose in life. As it relates to the meeting of his needs. We find this last temptation in Luke's Gospel in verses 9 to 12. Follow along as I read. 
And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up. So that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The setting of this test, of course, is Jerusalem. Satan leads Jesus to Jerusalem. It's interesting that in the text, Jesus goes. Jesus gave himself over to the purposes of the Father in testing him as a man. Satan takes him to a very, very precious place. He led him to Jerusalem. This is the place Jesus loves. This is a place at the very heart of God's people, the city of David. This is a very, very special place. It's a place where a a child of God could find the comfort of God as he comes into the sanctuary to seek God's presence. This is that place where God's presence dwelt. This is a very precious place to God's people, where his people would worship. This is a place where priestly spiritual leaders would represent the people before God and intercession was made. This is a place where sin was confessed and atoned for. This is Jerusalem, where prayers were offered, where great comfort and care was poured out by God on those most precious to him. And what Satan is doing is he's taking Jesus and he's putting him right in the center of this entire theme of this test here. And that is the provision and care of God. I'm going to put you right where you are, where God dwells in his presence. I'm going to put you right in the heart of where prayers are offered, atonement is made, confession is made. You will feel no more comfort and care and provision from God than when you are in Jerusalem at the temple. Notice in the text, it says he took him to the pinnacle of the temple, which is a word that uh, is, is in ancient documents, sometimes translated the wing of the temple. Luke doesn't tell us exactly where the pinnacle is on the temple mount. So no scholar or commentary can be dogmatic about it. Obviously, it's the wing of one of the large porticos. Uh, the definite article here, the pinnacle of the temple, means that when Luke wrote about it, he wasn't concerned to define it because everyone knew what the pinnacle was. And if it is a wing sort of structure, then on the south side of the temple, there were two sides. There was a west side and a, a southeast side, a southwest sort of area that overlooked the 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 temple area where they would have gatherings, etc. And there was the other side, the colonnade, sometimes called the royal colonnade, which descended down into the Kidron Valley where the Kidron Brook was flowing. So you had either the southwest corner, which was the temple court where people would gather, or you had the southeast corner. Both had wing sort of type uh, uh, structures on them. If you want to know which way I lean, it's interesting that Satan uses in the imagery here, Psalm 91, which I read last week, which says that the angels will keep charge concerning you so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. I'm not really sure that the temple court area with its, with its pavement would have been referred to as a stony area. The, 
the bottom near the Kidron Valley as the wall sort of descended away at Herod's temple, uh, if you got at the top southeast corner, it was about somewhere between 450 to 600 feet down to the craggy, rocky area below. It's not nearly that high today. So it's very, very interesting that Satan takes Jesus to one of these corners, probably uh, the southeast corner. It is, of course, in Acts 12, verse 2, where it says James was martyred and he was run through with the sword. Eusebius, uh, in the second century, recorded that traditionally history said James was thrown from the pinnacle. So maybe he was run through with a sword and his body then sent off the southeast corner down to the craggy rocks below at the Kidron Valley. That's the setting. The subtlety of this test is absolutely astonishing. The subtlety of it. Satan said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And look at this. For it is written. Wow. Satan is quoting Scripture. Satan knows Scripture. Satan's not concerned at times to put Scripture in his own mouth or in our day, in the mouths of his false prophets and teachers. It shouldn't surprise us that there is great subtlety in Satan's tactics here. And I don't want you to miss what he's doing. The first thing he's doing is using Scripture against Scripture. You see, Jesus has been solely focused and intensely concentrating on quoting Old Testament texts. Why? Because Deuteronomy 6 through 8, as we've been seeing, is the sole uh, sort of section that deals with God's people and their disobedience over these same temptations. They didn't want to trust God for his provision. They didn't want to trust God's word. They didn't want to trust God's glory. They didn't want to serve and exalt God. They wanted autonomy. They got disobedient. Every test is the same for the first son of God, Israel, and now the tests are the same for the second son of God, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's been intensely focused on that section of Scripture, and he's been quoting it to Satan, defeating the enticements. And for Jesus, it's all been, always been about truth versus lies. Truth versus lies. Hey, make some bread on your own. Uh, solve this problem for yourself. Get some relief. No, that's a lie. I'm going to go after the truth and believe the truth. Hey, exalt yourself. All you're going to do is just one little thing, and you can have the kingdoms of the world. No, that's a lie. I'm going to go believe the truth. Well, in this enticement, Satan gets around the conflict between truth and lies by going right to an Old Testament text himself as the basis for the enticement. So Satan turns to an Old Testament text and bases the enticement on the Old Testament text because he's hoping, listen, to bypass the truth that Jesus is so focused on. He ultimately is going to use truth to bypass Jesus' focus against lies and hopefully get Jesus to acknowledge what he already agrees with. He already agrees with the truth from the mouth of God. Satan knows the Scriptures. It should not surprise us 
2 Corinthians 11 says Satan comes as an angel of light, disguises himself as an angel of light. It should not surprise you that his false teachers and his false apostles disguise themselves as angels of light. It should not surprise you, beloved, when some false teacher is beginning to deceive a family member or a friend of yours or the church in evangelicalism is deceived for a time by someone they've listened to who has been speaking scripture. It's amazing to me how often the church will say, oh, that, that's faith-based, that's Bible-based. I'm not interested if something is Bible-based. This temptation by Satan is Bible-based. I'm not interested in that. I know what Satan can do. You say, does he use this tactic when he tempts us today? Sure he does. You say, why would Satan, why would Satan point us to the Scriptures? To God's word, if all he ever wants to do is get us to believe lies. Well, listen, first of all, he would never point us to the truth if we are a Christian who lives by a growing and vibrant humility and faith. Mark that, beloved. He will never drive you to the truth if it is your habit of life to humble yourself under it and believe it. He will never drive you to it. But... He will point you to the Bible if you are lazy about doctrine and you have a habit of arguing with God and not believing the truth. He'll be happy to point you to the Scriptures because He knows if He can tempt you with lies, you will add to the Scriptures or subtract from the Scriptures to get your own way. It's not that Satan exalts or promotes the truth. He never does that. But he will exploit a person's unwillingness to trust God's word, and he will even use the Bible itself to establish and promote those lies, to draw you in. What's his ultimate goal? To make you ignorant of the truth, to make you ignorant of God's will, to get you to trust yourself, to trust your own will. We're warned in Ephesians 5.17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish. There are all kinds of reasons Satan comes along and isn't going to entice you away from personal Bible study, isn't going to draw you away from that Friday night study, isn't going to draw you away from that discipleship relationship or those Sunday sermons or your favorite preacher online. There are lots of reasons he's not going to draw you away from those things because you might read the Bible in a way that promotes lies. Tonight, I'm going to walk through a series of ways that we read the Bible in, in ways that would give Satan an advantage. The ways that we study Scripture, the ways that we think about truth that would give Satan an advantage. I'll just summarize them for you here. If you read the Bible hypocritically, that is to say you read it, but you never do anything about it. The Scriptures say you should be a doer of the Word, not merely a hearer. How about if you read the Bible ignorantly? That is to say you use your own opinions to interpret the Scripture. You bring your opinions to the Scripture. Ah, that's not what the Bible means. I know what it means. That passage means this. How, where did you get that? Well, that's my experience. The Scriptures warn us that no Scripture was a matter of one's own interpretation. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. How about if you read the Bible arrogantly? That is to say, you read it, but you congratulate yourself for studying it and read it, reading it. You give yourself kudos for it. The scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge makes arrogant. How about if you read it skeptically? Man, you read the scriptures, but here's what you do. You demand 
that the scriptures remove all of your doubts before you submit to it. James 1.6, you must come to God if you want, to, want wisdom to deal with life and its trials. You must come to God in faith without any doubting. How about if you read it casually? You read the scriptures casually. That is to say, you read it, but you pay no careful attention to the context. You don't rightly divide the word. You just sort of walk through, sort of pulling from here and there, out of context. You descend in, you strip a verse out. Oh, I like that. That's a really wonderful saying. I read that on a Precious Moments card once. How about if you read the Bible pharisaically? In other words, you read it and you study it so that you can puff yourself up over other people. You can put yourself over other people. Luke eighteen eleven. Luke writes about the Pharisee standing there next to the public. And he says, Luke, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like the sinners. I'm not like them. There's one final reason that Satan would, would not necessarily pull you away from your understanding of Scripture. And it's the exact tactic Satan uses here against the Lord. It's this. He uses promises as personal rights. He uses divine promises as personal rights. Notice, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now turn to Psalm 91 for a moment. He is quoting from Psalm 91. So Satan knows the scripture. He is willing to use the scripture. And with the Lord Jesus Christ in this most intense test, he is speaking the scriptures I read Psalm 91 last week, but notice in verse notice in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Notice the theme of verse 3, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. Notice he's a shield and a bulwark at the end of verse 4. An immovable strength, that is to say. Verse 5, you will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You'll only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Why? Because you have made the Lord... My refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Then this, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands so you don't strike your foot against a stone. And then they'll tread upon the lion and cobra and young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Verse 14, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. There it is. The protection and provision of Almighty God. That's what's at stake here. God's promise of protection. 
This psalm, by the way, is a response to Psalm 90. Notice verse 17, uh, verse 16 of Psalm 90. Actually, verse 17. That let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. There it is. The protection, the favor of the Lord is to be upon us. So Psalm 91 then responds in this great psalm of the Lord's care. That's what the psalmist is saying. Not your view of what it means to care for you. Not my view of what it means to be provided for. But God's promised provision and care. The way He's promised it. In the language He's given it to us. And in the timing and manner He wants to give it. So this becomes the heart of this sinister enticement against the Lord. Here's the temptation. Oh yeah, God has promised to protect those He loves from any harm. And listen, Jesus, if you are the beloved Son of God and you're out here all alone, locked in spiritual conflict with spiritual forces, and if you'd like all of this to end, And you already know from Psalm 91 that God has promised that every angel in heaven stands around the throne ready to protect God's children. Of course, that includes you. You're His beloved Son. And that promise is especially then meant for you and you already believe God's promises. Then listen, put that promise to the ultimate test right now in this moment. Throw yourself off this precipice. To what end? Satisfy your own sense of whether God's promises are true or not. Satisfy your own sense of whether God's promises are true. Evaluate the matter for yourself. Here's how you do it. You presume that if God does keep His promise to protect and preserve, then He'll do it right now. According to the perilous circumstance that I design in my earthly life, in my timing, to satisfy my sense of His faithfulness to His promises. Whatever I get myself into right now, I know this, God has promised to protect me, so I'm going to go ahead and put him to my kind of test. So there it is. Use God's promises as personal rights. Use God's promises as personal rights. Turn his promises into presumptions of entitlement. You trust him to be faithful, don't you? Of course then trust Him for His faithful protection. Call for it. Call for it right now, in this manner, in this timing, because you think you deserve that. In fact, you do deserve that. Call for it right now. Test Him. That is right where Satan tries to get us as his children, isn't it? Same place. Come on, you trust God, don't you? You trust God. He says in his word that the righteous don't have to worry about what they wear or what they're going to eat or where their their resources are going to come from, but you're out of a job. Man, if you're out of a job, then go ahead. Satisfy your cravings for a little relief. Spend what you don't have. God will provide. Same. 
Same sin. Come on, you trust God, don't you? He says in His Word that He'll forgive those who confess. So you're in this rotten marriage. Go ahead and leave that person and, and spend time with that nice person at church who always makes you feel right. And for the last four months, you've developed an emotional connection. God will forgive you. He says He'll forgive you. Go ahead. Satisfy yourself. Test Him. Trust God, don't you? He says if you're in a trial, He'll take care of you. In fact, He promises that He won't put you through a trial that you can't handle. So, since this trial is already way too intense, and you already believe you're way beyond whatever resource you have, then get the relief you need right now. Go to God and demand what you want. Express your anger to God. Let doubts have their way. God can handle it. He promises a way of escape, doesn't He? Go to Him. Demand that escape. Test Him. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Why would this be a difficult test for Jesus in the moment? It is true. He is the Son of God, the Beloved Son. He is in Jerusalem, the place where care and provision and the presence of God are most experienced. He is alone. He is exhausted. This is at the very end. Oh, it'd be so easy to just call legions of angels from the throne of grace to bear him up. You're tired. You can't hold your legs up anymore. You're exhausted. You're at the end of everything. Just fall off. Go ahead. He will do what He promises, won't He? Yeah, but see, what was in the heart of the test was so devastating because if Jesus, even for a moment, presumed to use Psalm 91 as a demand or entitlement, if he presumed that God didn't have a different manner, but that God should do things in this manner, if he presumed that God's timing wasn't what Jesus wanted or demanded or even thought was best, in that moment he would have ceased to become our advocate. He would have ceased to have become our high priest. He would have disobeyed in his thought life, let alone actually tossing himself off. And at that point we'd have had no Savior. No one to fight for us. No advocate, no interceder, no Spirit of God come to live inside the believer. No redemption. Because at that point He would have ceased to become the God-man, the sympathetic high priest, the one who comes to our aid with grace to help in time of need. At that moment, even a thought that His manner and timing of circumstances had the right to presume on God. Verse 12 is so precious. Here's the Lord of glory, this sweet Savior of ours. Notice what He says in verse 12. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is said. That's interesting. It's just um, Luke describing what Jesus says. And Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts it here in what we call in, for, for you English students, 
uh, or even those of you studying a little bit of the ancient language of the Bible, the perfect tense. It is said, in other words, it was said, and because it was said so so much in a settled fashion by God in the Old Testament, then it has these ongoing and permanent implications. What he said then is true for all time. What did he say? There it is. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Jesus isn't pitting the Torah against the psalmist. He's not pitting Moses against the psalmist. He's not exposing some sort of... um, reinterpretation of the scriptures no not at all what he's actually doing is he's unmasking satan because he's unmasking the foolishness of wrongly interpreting scripture for personal gain rather than trusting god you see jesus does believe psalm 91 But Jesus also knows that Psalm 91 is not promising exactly how God will bring about his care. Psalm 91 is not telling us the manner and timing of God's perfect purposes and plans when he promises care and provision. In each circumstance of life, how God works out his care and provision for his people is up to the Lord. Sometimes he gives us details and sometimes he doesn't in his word. But what he has given us is a settled word. It is said with ongoing permanent implications. It is settled. God promised he will care for us. There's the issue. That's what God wants. He doesn't want you coming to him and asking him for for explanations when he hasn't given you one. And he certainly doesn't want you demanding a new timing or else he's to be doubted. A new manner of his care or else he can't be trusted. In fact, to demand that God carry out his care in the way we think is right and best is to presume upon God's perfect purposes. It is already, listen, an act of unbelief. The sin of presumption is already an act of unbelief. Because it's a clear violation of what God says elsewhere. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 here. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. What happened at Massah? It is recorded for you. You can study it on your own in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. What happens there is that Israel was given the promise of God that he would care for them. And they grumbled. He said he would supply for them. And they grumbled. They presumed. They demanded. No, you supply for us this way. What have you done? Brought us out into the wilderness to kill us? Look, they should have been like Job. Though he slay me out here in the wilderness, yet will I trust him. Because if God's care and provision is promised, that's all I need. Is God as the provider, as the caretaker. That's all I need. I don't need him to tell me. Exactly how he's going to do it, I might like that, but never demand it. I might pray for understanding. I might pray for grace that God gives me extra sustaining measure when things are so general and not specific. I might pray over a passage of Scripture with general principles and ask God to give me wisdom to obey it. And then I get up from that prayer and I walk forward in faith. But I can never come to God and demand that the manner and timing in which He fulfills His promises in my life go beyond what He has said. The 
We are to learn from Israel's presumption. Paul told us that in 1 Corinthians 10. Do not be like Israel of old who grumbled against God in presumption. Did you know that one of the verses we memorize to help us to trust God is 1 Corinthians 10.13? You remember what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says? It says, no test has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What does it say right after that? But God is faithful. Then it says, he'll not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the test will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Not out of the test, but through it in strength without sinning. That's the whole point. But why does it say in the middle, God is faithful? Because half the time we say to God, I'm beyond the point. This is way beyond my ability. You're not providing. You're not caring. You're not keeping your promise. I demand a new manner. I demand a new timing. I demand an explanation. You want me to believe you? Then you must care for me the way I think you should care for me. That was this test. That was the enticement. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says we should learn from Israel. And he he just chronicles how disobedient they were and how presumptuous they were and how much they complained against God. And God had to take an entire generation and wipe them off the face of the earth and preserve a few who believed him. And then 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 is there. Do not distrust God. He's faithful. And what does verse 14 say? Flee from idolatry. Flee. God doesn't need to prove His faithfulness to to us in the manner that satisfies our judgment and how we should be cared for and protected. The promise of Psalm 91 does not contradict God's warning never to presume upon God because the promise of protection will be fulfilled as the Lord deems best in our life. If you want to defeat the sin of presumption, there it is. If you want to defeat the sin of demanding something of God, you have no right to demand, then you must believe God for who He is. And if he promises it, it's not because he can show himself faithful, although that's true. But if he promises, it's because his character is believable, is worthy. His authority, his sovereignty is trustworthy. Why? Because he's God. That's what he wants. What a subtle test. Notice the strength of the test. The strengthening, or literally the strengthening after the test. Verse 13. And when the devil had finished every temptation. Look, if you want to connect that to something, connect it to Hebrews 4. He has been tempted in all points as we are. Now, Satan's not done with certain temptations because... Why? Because there are circumstances that have to test the Lord that have not yet happened. The most notable, of course, is the cross. So all of this is moving toward a crescendo, an ultimate test, which will happen at the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before, Satan will be there coming back with a flurry of temptations for Jesus to run from having to endure the cross. 
But verse 13 couldn't be clearer when he had finished every temptation. I don't believe that just means every temptation he planned in the wilderness. I believe that means every temptation that would ultimately come at a man. The tests of which Israel failed and the tests which Jesus had victory. The temptations over which he had victory. Satan threw the lot at him. And then he left him until an opportune time. (laughs) He left him until an opportune time. Uh, That just means he... um, He's not done. (laughs) He's not going to be done until death is crushed by Christ at the cross. And the last enemy is rendered powerless. And Satan, who holds the keys to death and hell, is rendered powerless. And that happened at the cross, so that's done. We now stand on the other side of that wonderful apex. But here in this account, you have Satan departing. What a moment that must have been for Jesus. In that time, Satan departing. I love to see those words. He left. He had to leave. It reminds me of James chapter 4. Doesn't it remind you of James chapter 4, verse 7? Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't mean resist him with your might. It means believe humbly like Jesus did. And when you submit to God's word, Satan has nothing to attach himself to. The victory sealed at that point in the tempting of your own flesh. We'll talk more about that tonight. And then something happens that Luke doesn't record, but, but Matthew records it in Matthew 4, verse 11. It says, and behold, in other words, look at this, angels came and began to minister to him. Wow, that's sweet. There's the Lord on our behalf. Fighting sin. Fighting the temptation to sin. And when he had for 40 days in those conditions fought. And when he had faced the final onslaught. The lion's share. The most furious. And he had finally said. You do not test the Lord. You do not presume upon God. He is the sovereign one. If he wants to care for me by taking me into the wilderness, stripping me of every physical desire, taking me out to where I'm alone, isolating me, if he wants to do that for the rest of my existence on earth until the cross, he's welcome to do that. Because his sovereign promises do not fail. Even if my circumstances look to me like it's a failure. When Jesus finished that final blow to Satan, you can quote Scripture all you want, Satan. But it is said with permanent implications. You don't test God. You don't demand something from Him as if He has to prove Himself to you. And so Jesus waited on God's ministry rather than get it for himself. And when he was done, God's ministry came. And it came, I'm sure those angels were just looking into the face of the Father around the throne, waiting for the signal. Go. And they were there, ready to minister to him. I'm sure they brought energy and food and 
ministry and the Holy Spirit's presence was upon Christ. So much so that verse 14 says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. His ministry has now begun. He was affirmed as the Son of God and the Son of Man, our Messiah, able to be our High Priest. Isn't that great? Fought the fight. He won the battle. And, of course, when it comes to the revelation of God, one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture that speaks of the revelation of God, both in nature as well as the special revelation of His written Word, is Psalm 19. And what does it say in Psalm 19 right near the end? And we'll close with this, but this is absolutely heart-charging. This is soul-energizing. This is a warning. Psalm 19, this great psalm about God's revelation, notice what it says after describing the purity and the clarity and the power of God's Word in, verses, in verse 7 and following. Then he says in verse 10, they are more des- this word of God is more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. So the scriptures are a warning to us. And in keeping them, there is great reward. There's your promise. Keep the word. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Look, if you've got errors in your life, you can't discern them. Even other people can't see what you can see, and you don't even know your own heart. The way God knows it. But God, that's the implication, can discern your errors. He can help you see them. And then He can acquit you of the hidden faults. You're not going to get before God in Christ Jesus and have something come up that can overtake you. God takes you from redemption in Christ, covers all your sins so that you're totally forgiven, gives you the Holy Spirit who will now make you like Christ and it is a securing salvation. It will acquit you of even the the hidden things that are disruptive of your Christian life. That steal your joy. That take away your effectiveness. That keep you from being an effective discipler. A gospel witness. He can acquit you of even those things. How does He do that? He can bring the Word of God to bear and show that you can change them because you have the power of the Spirit inside of you. You can conform those errors, those hidden faults to the character of Christ. And then look what the psalmist says, verse 13. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. It's interesting. It's the only particular category of sins that the psalmist mentions specifically in this psalm. And what he said, what does he say about them? Let them not rule over me. Oh, man, presumptuous sin rules over us. We want God to satisfy us before we believe Him. And He wants it the other way around. Humble Faith. We will talk about that tonight. What is the difference when you are facing a temptation and you have victory over that temptation so that you mature? What is the key? It is not emotions. It is not some satisfying explanation of your circumstances. 
It is not God doing what you demand. It is not relief. What changes you in that moment is humble faith. And there's a way that it works, beloved. There's a way that the Spirit of God works that work inside of us. And that's why the psalmist says, keep back your servant from the presumptuous category of sins. Those sins that would rule over me and and I won't be blameless. Why? Because I'm not meditating on your words. They're not the meditation of my heart. They're not acceptable in your sight. Actually, I'm not actually looking to your purposes and sovereign plan. I'm demanding my own. So the sweet Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, was in the wilderness and it was intense, but he was ministered to because he did not presume upon his God. did not go after relief. He believed God's wisdom rather than his own. He did not exalt himself in the moment because he loved God's glory more than man's glory. And he did not presume upon God's purposes by demanding that God prove his care, even with an Old Testament scripture thrown in his face. No, he knew that to do so would be to presume upon his God who'd said, I promise to care for you. What an example to us. What a great advocate we have. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for this precious account of the Lord's resolve. Oh, how we love you, oh God. Because we know that we could never do that, what you did, unless you could do it. And then you empower us to do it. So, Lord, you face that test. And in every one of those evil temptations that came against your righteous impulses. In every way your humanity was made vulnerable. We experience but a fraction of such things. And now, because of your victory, from this time in the wilderness all the way to the cross, to the resurrection and to your exaltation, we now have the power to face off with the world, the flesh, and the tempter. So we just say thank you. We're overwhelmed with gratitude and love for you. The fact that you promise that you are making intercession every day for us, praying for our strength against temptation like you did Peter. Praying that even after we fail, that we'll be lifted up by your spirit and strengthened in a greater way next time. Praying that, that we will be strengthened in the grace in which we stand because of your work on the cross. Lord, these are realities for us that give us such great hope and comfort. So thank you for being our embattled Savior for us, for our victory. Lord, there are rebellious unbelievers, no doubt, even in our midst today, who have demanded that you prove to them that they ought to follow you. How blind, Lord. 
cause the scales to fall off their eyes. May they come in humble faith to Jesus Christ alone for their salvation and repent of their pride of demanding things of you and presuming upon your grace, kindness. May they come in faith alone. Nothing else. No demands, no presumption. Just faith alone. We pray that for them in your mercy. Snatch them from the fire, Lord, even today. We pray for our great Savior's sake and in his wonderful, glorious name, these things. Amen.